Hello and welcome to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. My name is Charlotte, I'm Patient Advocacy Manager here at Leukemia Care. This time I chatted to Wilfred Emmanuel Jones, aka The Black Farmer. Wilfred had a high-flying TV production career, but always dreamed of being a farmer. He lived with myelofibrosis for a long time, but shortly after finally starting farming, was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. Thanks for joining us today, Wilfred. It's really nice to be here, Wilfred Emmanuel Jones. I'm looking forward for our little chat. Great. Thank you for for joining us today. Um, I thought we'd start, if I may, before we go into sort of your connection with leukemia, just sort of talk a little bit about your brand, really, The Black Farmer, because I'm intrigued by the story behind it. I find it really fascinating. Oh, thank you very much, actually. Well, let me tell you a bit of a quick potted history about my life, really. So I was actually born in Jamaica, and I'm part of the Windrush generation. And um, I was brought up in a place called Clarendon um, in Jamaica, in the heart of the island. And everybody knows the story that in the in the 50s and 60s, people like my parents had the opportunity to come to this country to not only better their lives, but the lives of their children. And um, my parents moved to um, Birmingham. And then um, as a young boy, I joined them three years later. So I was brought up in a place called Small Heath in Birmingham. I'm from a family of 11. And there was, you can imagine, 11 of us sort of um, brought up in a two up, two down toast house. So A, it was very cramped. And B, we were very, very poor. And um, there's nothing romantic to say about how I was brought up um, as a child. It was the pits. I hated every goddamn minute of it. And because we were so poor, um, my father had an allotment and it was my um, job as eldest boy to look after this allotment. And in a sense, this allotment really became my oasis away from the misery that I was surrounded by. And this is really an important part of my story that I'm about to tell you. And it is this, that at the age of 11, at 11 years old, I enjoyed being on this allotment so much that I promised myself that one day, I would like to have my own farm. And it was a promise that I lodged into the back of my mind. And everything that I subsequently did in my life was to try and get into a position to buy this farm. Now, it took me some 35, 40 years to achieve it. But one of the things I like to say to people, especially young people, you have to have the audacity to dream and dream big. One of the things about being English is that they tend to be quite reserved and they don't like the idea that you put it out there. It's very much an Americanism to have big dreams. Well, I think that there's not many things we want to try and copy from the Americans, but but having big dreams is one of the things that we should copy because, you know, you don't come from society's dustbin heap and achieve um, the things that I've done unless you are prepared to, to have big dreams. Anyhow, I could tell you a long story if we had more time for this podcast, but, you know, I did a variety of things. Um, I eventually ended up in food, and the only reason I ended up in food is because I left school without any qualifications. I'm dyslexic. And in those days, if you were thick, if you weren't educated, they were thinking, what the hell can they do with you? And catering seemed to be the only place where you could go. That's very different from today. You know, catering is a very, it's a glamorous profession to go into. And I think that was really because of the cult of the celebrity chefs that created that. Anyhow, I went to catering college. I worked in a variety of restaurants and hotels. And then I got a job at the BBC as a producer director, which is like, you know, crazy how I managed to sort of get that, my my sort of um, foot in the door there. And then uh, my claim to fame 
is that some of your listeners may remember a very popular program at the time called the Food and Drink Program. Mm -hmm. That was the program that really started the cult of the sort of celebrity chefs. And it was my job to break these guys in. So I gave Gordon Ramsay, for example, his first break in television. James Martin, you know, Raymond Blanc, some of the big name celebrity chefs. I was the person who had to break them in. And I think my boss knew because obviously I had some experience working in a kitchen environment and that, you know, understood the aggression of those environments because, you know, those chefs are the sort of guys that would take you outside to sort of problem out. And so the nice middle-class Oxford types would have been really intimidated by that, whereas my boss knew that I wouldn't have been. So, you know, I made lots of films with those guys. I traveled the world making films about food and drink. And I was at BBC for about 15 years. And then I left and then started my own food and drink marketing agency. So I launched brands like Lloyd Gross and Sauces, Kettle Chips, Plymouth Gin, Cobra Beer. Big brands now, but at the time, they were sort of challenger brands. That then gave me the money to buy my farm. And I bought my farm down in, in Devon. It's on the Devon Cornwall border near a place called Launceston or Lanson, as they keep saying, I just call it Lanson. And um, it was an old dairy farm. And when I say farm, it's only 30 acres. So in the greater scheme of stuff, it ain't a big farm that um, a lot of farmers have. But one of the things that I've always recognized in life, it's outsiders who see opportunity. And what I sort of recognized when I bought this farm is this massive gap between urban and rural Britain. It's as though you're in a foreign country. And really a big lack of understanding between the two communities. And that's when I saw an opportunity to create a brand that could bridge that gap. Because um, the only way that you are going to be able to create a sustainable business is that if you get urban Britain on side. And a lot of people from rural Britain tend to sort of not think they need to do that, but that ain't the case. And um, what I want to do is that I wanted to create a brand that was going to make a real point. And, you know, we're a purpose-driven business. I don't um, subscribe to the idea that all you do is, um, is do foods or do products and you don't get involved in, in, in the, the greater good of either the na nation or globally. So everything about the black farmer is, is a purpose-driven business. So what I wanted to do was to use my profile in that business to either start a conversation or to bring about change. And um, when I decided that I was going to launch my own brand, because I wanted it to mainstream, I thought, I do not want this to be an ethnic brand. I wanted it to be very mainstream. So that's why I went into a sausage um, because everybody loves a sausage. And I thought, right, I'll do a gluten-free sausage, which was gluten-free that could be consumed by the mainstream. And then when I was thinking about what to call the brand, I was scratching my head thinking, what the hell am I going to call it? And then one day it came to me, all of my next door neighbors used to call me the Black Farmer. And I thought, whoa, now that's a pretty good brand name. Not only is it a really good brand name, but it has an edge to it. And it begs a question. It begs a question, well, how many black farmers are there? You know, you wouldn't be able to call yourself the black farmer if we were in South Africa or, or America, because there's tons of black farmers. It only works because it's unique in this country that actually, at the time, there weren't any sort of black farmers. And so that's the reason why um, it's called the black farmer. You know, I'm a, I'm a branding man. And most people make the mistake of thinking it's just about the quality of the product. That's really important. But, you know, people don't buy your products because you do fantastically great tasting food and because the price is right. It's also because of what you stand for. What are you trying to do to contribute to the greater good? So 
I hope that explains a little bit about the Black Farmer brand. Definitely. It's a fascinating story. And I just wanted to pick up briefly before we go into a diagnosis about what you say about wanting to change things. Is it purely for you about changing farming or are you hoping for a wider change in society in terms of what is your long-term goal when you say you want to see change from your brand? It doesn't really matter what I did. You know, um, I want to see a, a wider change in societies in all sorts of levels. And it comes from the fact is that if you're poor, if you're on a society's dustbin heap, I know, I've experienced how hard it is to really um, pull yourself up from that position. You know, how difficult it is to get opportunities, how really difficult it is to sort of progress. Now, I'm unique in terms that I managed to sort of do it. And therefore, it is really important that for people like me who's been through that pain, help those others who are trying desperately to try and get a break, to, to get those opportunities, because it was really, really tough. And, you know, one of the things that I always advocate to people is that my success today is because I have found guardian angels, people who've gone out of their way to give me a break, that they have not followed the protocols or the conventions that most people get their jobs by going through some protocol and invention. If I had to go through protocols, conventions, I would never be where I am today. So one of the things I hate is human resources because it all starts profiling. And if you don't hit the profiling, if you don't have these, you, you stay on society's dustbin heap. It takes the courage of individuals that help people like me to sort of progress in the world. And so that is one of the things that I will be ca- keep championing. So in farming, for example, just to um, give you a bit of an example of something I'm really passionate about. If you're an immigrant um, and you come to this country, you're automatically at a disadvantage of going to farming because most farmers get their land handed down through generations. It's usually the eldest son that gets it and they get hundreds and hundreds of acres because land is really expensive. So if you're an immigrant, you already don't stand any uh, a chance. But there is also a lot of land that are owned by big major institutions, be that the duchy, be that the, um, the um, universities, be that the National Trust, be, there are tons of organizations that owns a lot of land. You probably find that your bloody organization owns land somewhere. And then what they then do is that they will have land agents who will then lease that land out. And what they do is they lease it out to the traditional, typical families. And a very simple thing that those corporate entities could do to bring about change is say to their land agent, okay, 10% of my land, I want you to deliberately go out and find new people to lease this land to, to start bringing new, fresh um, uh, blood into the industry. Farming is one of the biggest clothes shops that most people don't sort of understand and recognize. And I want to bring that to people's attention so we could start sort of demanding change. Because farming connects you to food, the food chain. And we're all consuming foods, we're all spending our money. They've never been held to account. And so that's one of the things I think we could start actually looking at and saying, we want to bring about um, change in this industry, as it were. Yeah. Definitely. It sounds like a really important conversation to be had. And um, I guess my final question is, what I was wondering whether you'd seen a, a change in the last year with all the wider conversations about racism that have been going on. Have you seen more interest in your brand or is it is it very much been steady for you? 
The, black, like, the best thing that's happened to me is Black Lives Matter. You know, there's no denying that it's been really good for me as a business. Now, it's all well and good that me, I sit down and I enjoy the spoils of that. There's suddenly been an awakenness. But for me, it's about, A, where do we go with that? So um, people are, for example, in a couple of weeks' time, we have Windrush Day. I wonder how many people know there's Windrush Day. What are the organizations going to be doing to celebrate people like from my generation? And then we have Black History Month in October. So the thing that I'm a bit sort of concerned about is that, you know, they'll have special events, but actually you do not get any changes in the wider society. And that is what I want to see. And um, I still think we're, 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 we're a long way away from that. You definitely see more black faces on television. You know, you're seeing faces, but does that actually get to the point where we're seeing bigger changes in society? Because diversity, I'm a farmer, you know, and farmers know that what you need is diversity. If you don't, your crops will fail, your animals will be diseased. So nature tells us that diversity is critical for us to prosper. So we need to take the lessons of nature within our industries um, rather than actually thinking that by surrounding ourselves with people that we feel we have something in common with, we're from the same background, is the right way of operating. It isn't. It's about having the courage to allow diversity. Well, yeah, in the charity sector, it's all you know. You could always tell somebody who works in the in the charity sector. You're a particular. I don't know about you, but they're they're a particular type. Okay. They're a particular bloody type. And I just think what it needs to do is that it needs to allow in, not just, you see what, everybody cares, okay? And they and how they care, they, they show it differently. You know, I the, the amount of organizations I volunteered to help, because, you know, if you've had leukemia, it's a pretty nasty thing. And the organizations behind it have not ever been able to actually seize opportunity because, their heads are at a totally different place. So that's one of my big frustrations about charities is that they're a bit closed themselves, really, and they don't. No, I, I agree with you. I guess this brings us nicely on then to your diagnosis. So you're a busy man, you've got a, a working farm, you've been, and, and then a few years into that, you were diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia in 2014. And I just wanted to start with asking you, what were the first signs and symptoms you experienced do you remember what they were? Well, let me go further back than that, actually, because yeah. it, it, it's story is a, it, it's a bit bigger than that. So, sure. you know, so first of all, I'm not a hands-on farmer. I re, I'm, a, I'm a gentleman farmer. You know, it, what I say is that the more time I spend on my farm, I'm not doing my job. My job is to go out there and to tell people about the brand and sort of marketing. So I don't want anybody thinking that this is a guy there milking cows and do, I don't. I've got my next door neighbor who I employ to do all of that sort of stuff. Now, I um, had a condition called myelofibrosis, and I had myelofibrosis for about 15, 20 years. And, you know, I used to go and have regular um, catch-ups to make sure that it was, um, it was contained because what my consultant said, look, you know, there's a one in a million chance that it may actually convert to sort of leukemia. Um, but, uh, you know, I sort of lived with the condition for about 20 years and then nothing happened. And then, you know, it just happened that um, I, you know, started to feel, you know, quite ill. And what tends to happen, and a lot of people who've had 
acute myeloid leukemia will probably be able to remember themselves. You feel very tired, but what tends to happen is you put these things down to other things. It's the biggest bloody mistake we make. You just put it down to other things. And if I look back at that week, you know, before I was rushing to the hospital, it was weeks where the signs were, boy, you know, you need to go and get something out, but you just keep pushing yourself through. And then I could just remember that I was so exhausted and I was feeling really bad. And luckily, I can remember my consultant saying to me, look, if you ever feel, you know, really bad, go into A&E. And I was in London at the time. And so I drove to um, um, Chelsea and West Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, um, which is not very far at all from um, where I'm living in, in Battersea. And... Um, and I was thinking at the time, oh, you know, I'm just overreacting because I can remember driving there, just leaving my car in the underground sort of um, car park. Uh, but then I started to sort of really deteriorate. And then it took a while. I mean, the other thing I, I need to say is one of the worst experiences of my life also was going into somewhere like the National um, Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. It was a, it was a, it was a terrible experience. And one of the things. I also would say to people is this, it's really, really important that you get to a hospital that specializes in your condition, you know, because if you don't, especially with something like leukemia, because they need to, they, they need to act fast. I mean, so that's what my, so luckily, because I was being treated, I was had my, I'm, I've always had private insurance. I mean, I've been able to see the benefits of the NHS and private. So my consultant then, um, then sort of transferred me from Chelsea Westminster to UCH um, in London. And that was like, you know, chalk and cheese. The experience was phenomenal in terms of how they really looked after me. And um, again, it was like it, the, the horror of that experience at Chelsea Westminster means that I'm just terrified of that hospital. And then, you know, I thought because it was the state of the art hospital, it would be really good. And a lot of people would probably be able to um, testify to this. Most stuff, it ain't about actually the equipment and how modern they are. It really comes down to the culture of the people looking after you. It really makes a massive difference. Is that a kind heart, a a a, a, a person that really cares makes all the difference. And um, you know, I, because I was rushed in, um, because I went in at A and E, which is you know, it's right on the coal face. You're just then just treated with the same skepticism um, and um, that these people have to deal with I'm on a regular basis. So what happens, you just get chucked in with a pool of, oh, God, you know, they took one look at me, they probably think, oh, is, is he taking drugs? You know, have you taken any drugs? Is there what, you know, they just wouldn't, they didn't see the urgency of it. And that's why, luckily, I had a consultant that I was able to ring and he sorted things out very quickly. Anyhow, when I then got rushed to... Um, UCH, uh, they took one look at me and they just thought, you know, you are seriously, you know, ill. And we don't even know where you're going to make it through the night. And then what they had to do was to try and get the leukemia under control, first of all. And I don't know what the medical term is, but, you know, they had to do something to try and, you know, stop these white blood cells just constantly sort of repeating themselves. And, and, you know, they're saying that your blood is becoming like sort of soup. And so there was a lot of things they were trying and it kept failing to try and get this bloody leukemia under control. 
And I think they also had to um, make me, put me to sleep for about a week um, because, you know, my, to give my body or things like rest or something like that, and I was thrashing around like mad. So they eventually um, got it under control. And um, my consultant said, look, we've got it under control, but, you know, it will come back. And then what I then subsequently realized is that the worst sort of leukemia <laughs> to have is something that's uh, mutated from myelofibrosis. It's like a bit of a death sentence. Um, it's very aggressive. You know, it was, it was seen to be very, very aggressive. And then it was a question of, well, it will come back. And these are the choices that, you know, we either send you home with some medication and you'll be dead within three months or we do a, um, a stem cell transplant, but we don't like to do stem cell transplant because a lot of people just die from cell transplants because I'm just at the wrong age because um, um, they don't particularly want to put, if you're going to die, why put you through such goddamn torture? So uh, it's just at the sort of wrong age. And then they do all these sort of series of calculations about, you know, whether they should start what is a pretty brutal process. I didn't know this at the time. Um, and so luckily they decided that I, I was fit enough for them to, to try to go for um, a stem cell transplant. And the next thing then was to get a match. Uh, everybody thought, well, you're from a family of nine brothers and sisters, you'll find a match. Not one of them was a match. And so again, you may know that if you are black, Asian, mixed race, the chances of you finding a match from the register is very, very slim because not enough people of color is actually volunteering um, to, to get on the register. So that's one of the things I think we need to be doing a lot of messaging out to the, 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 the black community that a lot of lives can be saved if you volunteer to go on, on, on the register. Um, and, um, you know, there's certain criteria about going on, on the register, but it's really important that people from my community go onto the register. Anyhow, they couldn't find a match for my brothers and sisters, so they sent out and they searched um, the, the register globally, and they couldn't really find a match then. But luckily, the hospital that I was in, they were, they were really starting to develop haplotransplants, transplants, and that is where it's like a, a half match. So what they did... Uh, and it was very, very new, new ground, um, haplos, but you know, when, when you don't have much choices, it's either that or die. And so what they then did is so they then took, um, a, um, a transplant from my brother and then they did this, this, um, haplo transplant. And then what was very interesting is that, you know, even up to the day they were going to be doing this transplant, there was new research that, that actually came in. So what they were going to do, they changed their mind because the research had come back saying, well, it wasn't sort of effective. For example, I was due to have radiation, but they decided not to do that because the research had come back saying it wasn't going to do anything. Anyhow, they did. What, what, the thing I'll always remember is this, is that um, I was, fe after they got the, the uh, leukemia under control and they were going through this process of trying to find a match, I felt pretty good. I hadn't lost my hair. I just thought, you know, I'd got away, you know, pretty lightly. And um, I could remember that as we started to build up towards the transplant, all the nurses were saying, look, you know, when it gets bad, really, you know, hold on and try and, you know, just hold on there. And I kept thinking, well, what are they going on about? Because, you know, this has been pretty, pretty easy so far, really. I just thought, you know, I've dodged the bullets. Anyhow, 
They then did the transplant, and my God, it's the most brutal thing that's ever happened in my life. And the, and and I've written a book, in fact. If anybody wants to um, hear more about my life story and about my, my my treatment, is to read the book that I've written, and it's called Jeopardy: The Danger of Playing It Safe. So you could get it on Amazon, or they could even get it as an audio book. But it talks about my experience and also some of my ideas about how to change your life. But you know, I've been through many things in my life, but that transplant was brutal. And then, you know, it's the only time in my life when I just thought death is better than this, you know, where you just sort of, it was just so, so awful. And then, and then it's a bit like, it's, it's a, it's, then it's the what, it's the timetable, because you know what they do is they kill off your whole immune system and then to then put in the, the new, um, whatever they call it, the new thing. And then it's 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 timing it down. I remember every day, watch your neutrophils, watch your neutrophils, because you know it's about getting your neutrophils level up to a certain level. That means that you know you're not so susceptible for infection. Because actually, what kills a lot of people, and, and when I was there, people died because actually they picked up a small infection that the the, the doctors could not get under control. And, you know, you just think, my God, you know, it is a bit of a lottery, that same age, same hospital, same team. One person doesn't make it and I make it. And it's something like they just couldn't get the infection under control. And then I can remember that slow um, climb back up to getting the neutrophils up to a level where actually you could sort of eat even things like fruit. I wasn't allowed to eat fruit before I went to have, um, before I had the stem cell drugs, I had all my sort of dodgy teeth taken out just in case that may have caused an infection. The irony was that the only food that I could eat was the food that you're all told never to eat, which are things like the McDonald's, the things that are cooked, you know, so cooked so much that there's no chance of anything actually um, getting to them. So that's how crucial it was. And that, you know, I just made sure that, you know, I didn't allow anybody to come and visit me. I was really, really careful that actually to try and give myself a fighting chance. I did not want to pick up any infection. Anyhow, the neutrophil levels then got to a level when um, I then was able to sort of, you know, go home. But then all, once, once this immune system then starts, this new immune system starts kicking in, that's when the battle goddamn starts between the old immune system and the new. And the bastards kick the shit out of each other because you're having all these awful sort of things. I would, I would, I was constantly rushed in and out of hospital because of things going wrong. These are the things that they sort of predicted. And then one of the big consequences of it was something called graft versus host disease. So if you look at me now, if you look at my skin, this is um, a loss of this pigmentation. In case you're, uh, you people can't see me, I've got a loss of pigmentation. Um, and that's caused by graft versus host disease. And first of all, you get a massive, um, I got a massive acute um, GVHD and then sort of chronic GVHD and I still suffer as a consequence um, for GVHD. But, you know, I'm what, I, I'm now in what they call the sort of the cleared period because I'm sort of what, some seven, seven years, eight years on, which is like a real big sort of landmark that actually, you know, it ain't gonna get rejected because again, what you live with is a nightmare that actually the, 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 the stem cell transplant might get rejected. And you got to do You got to go through all that process again. You know, the amount of people who've had rejection after rejection. And I thought, thank God I didn't have to go through that again. And then, so the, the long term consequences of, of all of this is that this graft versus host disease. 
and I was on medication, but you know, it's getting to the to the extent that the, the levels of medication was such a high dose that they just didn't want to continue that with me. And then I, I now have something called ECP at Guy's Hospital, which has made a real big difference in terms of keeping the um, the, the, the graft versus disease uh, in check. So I have problems with my eyes, with my skin, with my mouth, and with my stomach. But it's a, it's, it's a small price to pay for life. And one of the things that actually is a constant reminder to me about how lucky I am is that when I look into the mirror and I see these marks, it's a constant reminder is that you're only here today because of science, you know, and because of luck. So you have to be very, very grateful and do not waste life. Do not waste it. So I'm hoping, well, I'm trying to live my life that actually every single day counts to do the best you can in terms of helping your fellow human being that actually the thing that makes this world go around is is what we do for each other. And not only do I know that I would not be who I am today because of generosity and kindness of people who didn't have to do it is why I'm successful. And so part of the reason why I like to tell my story to try and help people going through this, this process is that actually it's 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 only way you get through is through the stories. And then for the people by the bed, that must be the worst nightmare because, you know, if you're a loved one, you're a relative and all you can do is be by the bed. That's a bloody nightmare. And I don't know whether there's enough is done and looked into that because, you know, when you're ill, well, you got to focus and you've got a job to do. You've got something to do. But when you're just standing there and sitting there and you're watching your loved one suffer and suffer and suffer, that's the worst. It's, it's, it's worse than suffering yourself in, in a sense. And I just think that not enough is gone, go out to those people who have to endure absolute suffering. And so, you know, I have to acknowledge those people. And then there's a special part in my heart for those people because it's, it, it's, it's an awful thing. So, you know, I'm, as I said, seven years on, I'm, I'm still alive. I've, I've had an extended life and I want to treasure it as much as I can. Enjoying Wilfred's story so far? Before we get back to it, we've got a special offer for all you podcast listeners. You can now try Black Farmer products at 15% off by using discount code LUKECARE15, that's L-E-U-K-C-A-R-E-15, at theblackfarmer.com. Enjoy! So I'm intrigued with all you've said about the long-term impacts, whether it drives you to achieve those goals you were talking about in the beginning or whether it's caused you to slow down a little bit in life or, or is it a little bit of both i haven't slowed down <laughs> and then, and i've always been driven i'm still that guy from the gutter trying to climb out you know out of the gutter that so that that is still in in me but the thing about being successful in life is not being afraid and um that one of the interesting things about covid COVID has been one of the great teachers for us, so people are prepared to, to learn the lessons. And in the West, people surround themselves with um, certainty. They think there is such a thing as certainty. Well, the only thing that is certain is that life is uncertain. And therefore, the only challenge we have in life is how to make a friend of uncertainty. The amount of people who then panic if some form of certainty is taken away, they lose their job or something happens to them, they go into a spiral because they think that somehow they're uh, uh, owed some form of certainty, you know, 
the best thing, a mindset, is that you need to put your arm around uncertainty and walk together towards the future. When you've been through the sort of experience that I have, and a lot of people have been through this, that tells you that there is no such thing as certainty. And that actually what you need to do is build a life around this gift of uncertainty. So rather than seeing uncertainty is horror, it is a gift because it helps to give perspective in life. And that's the wonderful thing that we should all really have is perspective. So that's what that leukemia has done. Because, you know, before that, you know, the shit hot guy had done pretty well, you know, and, and I'm doing pretty well, but it's whack. Well, you think you're doing pretty well, boy, now deal with this. You know, here's a bit of uncertainty to get you to appreciate and to get sort of perspective, really. Because I work on the basis that most people surround themselves with a white noise of living. When they look at their lives and they analyze their lives and they analyze their days, most of their day is full of shite. Things that don't matter are not important. Now, when you go through the sort of stuff that we've been through, you really do focus down onto what is important. And so if there's anything I would like to advise people to do is actually don't wait until you get um, leukemia or some pretty um, terrible condition to get perspective, to get focus try and do that as quickly as possible. And I wanted to pick up on your mention of COVID. Um, I think a lot of blood cancer patients have struggled, particularly ones in remission for a long time, like yourself, who were labelled as vulnerable again, despite being quite considerable, you know, time away from that period of their life. Did that affect you at all, being labelled in this way? I don't give a shit. You can label me how you like, but I can remember at the time, because, you know, I'm very, even now, um, before COVID, I would always pick up some sort of infection in the winter. You know, I, I was always being, you know, know that, you know, I, I don't travel on public transport. I'm very, very conscious not to really pick up any sort of unnecessary sort of infections. I've always been very conscious about that. So when the whole thing started off, I was way ahead before the country started to get there, get into gear about actually, this is pretty serious. Because what I did not want to do is end up in hospital again because actually because I was on immunosuppressants as well. So I did not want to end up in hospital because I didn't take this thing seriously. So, you know, I was very, very happy to lock down, very happy not to 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 surround myself with sort of people. And I've been very, very cautious. And so I've been grateful to have been on this vulnerable list because it meant I had my vaccine much earlier um that than, than, than most of them actually there is some sort of high priority. So yeah, label me as much as you bloody want to, because actually this Corona thing ain't, you know, it's nothing to, to play with. It's pretty serious. And people are still trying to work out what the impact of sort of long COVID is going to be on, on, on people's lives. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful for the fact that I don't have to queue up like the rest of the, like the rest of the country. I find it fascinating what you say about you used to avoid public transport anyway and things. I think that's the message we've been trying to get out there is to help you cope with the COVID situation. Think about how you coped with infection beforehand. Exactly. Leukemia patients have this unique perspective on, on dealing with infection that the rest of us are struggling to deal with. Exactly. So, I, you know, so little things, I, I never share someone's computer and you know, I typewriter. So I'm just very, very... So this is the sort of stuff that I do. Even when I'm opening a door, I would deliberately reach higher that no that normal people don't do. So I don't, or I reach low. I deliberately do all of these sort of stuff when I go to the. I'm just so aware that actually I need to make sure that all the stuff that people just don't even think about 
can be a trap for some sort of infection. You know, I never travel on public transport. I'll only go by taxi. Uh, if I fly anywhere, it would only be sort of business class. I just make sure that I protect myself from it because, you know, I'm lucky to be alive. So that's my um, philosophy about it. Absolutely. I think you've covered all the questions I wanted to ask, but I always like to end the podcast with um, one question for everyone is, if you were speaking to someone who'd been newly diagnosed with leukaemia, do you have like a tip or words of advice for them that you'd like to share at that moment? Well, yeah, if, if you've just been um, newly diagnosed um, with, with leukaemia, the key thing is this, is that most people think that there's something that they have done wrong. The amount of people, the moment that they find they've got some, you know, diagnosis of some cancer, they think there's something they've done, they haven't had enough exercise, they, you know, they desperately then try and do change their diet. They go into uh, they, they go into some mode of trying to control it, okay? And I just think that's that's just further punishing yourself. And one of the things that I was very good at was letting go, to let the process take its course. And that actually is to, the, the more you try and control it, the more actually the difficult journey it, it will be. Is, is, is to recognize that it will change your life, that things, because again, what people want to do is go back to normal. You will never, ever go back to normal. You know, the, the experience is going to change you and therefore it is a gift. The greatest gift we could have in life is when change is forced upon us. So rather than seeing that change is going to be damaging, actually it is a gift because it may then actually get us to do the very things that we've been putting off. You know, help us to focus on the things that are important. And it's not, it's only when you have some life-threatening moment that you, you have a chance to sort of change. So it can be a gift to grow, to learn. So that's what I would say to people is that, you know, it is a process and it's a gift to do the things that you've always wanted to do. Great. Thank you. Wilfred, thank you for your time today. It's been really interesting um, listening to you tell us your story and I hope it's been useful for, for everybody listening. Okay, well, it's very, very nice. And so if anybody wants to find out a bit more about me, as I said, you know, get that book. But also, I've got a lovely farm shop. I'm doing a bit of advertising now. I've got a lovely farm shop to sort of... Um, Absolutely. We sell a, a variety of um, food on, on online farm shop and we go all over the country. So, you know... If you're a leukemia person, you'll get special treatment for me because I know we're a special tribe. So um, I'm sure we'll put something on specially for. One question I did want to ask you is, do you have a favorite product or sausage that you'd like to recommend to the listeners? Well, the ones that we're really, really popular for is our jerk sausages. Um, because okay. it's all, one of the things about having leukemia is that um, you lose your, you can't have spicy food. And you lose your 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 flavor um, and your taste, and so it took years, years, years for my for me to be able to eat anything within the real sort of flavor. And it's like it's it's like a godsend to be able to eat things with sort of flavor. So yeah, that's why my jerk sausages are my absolute favorite because they're a bit spicy, they've got a bit of personality, and now I could eat them. I've made a note to try them. They sound delicious. Thank you. Uh, thank you again for your time and and for chatting to us today. Great, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. For more information and support from Leukemia Care, go to our website, leukemiacare.org.uk or call our helpline on 080 88 010 444. See you next month.